Hello, everyone. Uh, uh, thank you all for being here uh, with us today. My name is uh, Yashar Ishrari. Uh, I'm a pain physician at Ashna Clinic uh, and associate professor, Department of Anesthesiology and Critical Care Medicine at Ashner Health System. Uh, I'm also clinical assistant um, professor at Louisiana State University uh, School of Medicine. This uh, uh, podcast will explore opioid prescribing and use in perioperative periods. Uh, following our first podcast uh, on biology of pain and will be followed uh, by the third podcast uh, titled uh, Alternative Therapies uh, for Pain, Medical Marijuana, uh, and Mindfulness, uh, respectively. An open and interactive webinar uh, will be moderated by uh, faculty from these podcasts, uh, where we can all discuss broadly uh, the topic of non-surgical management for pain. This is a jointly funded uh, conceptualized uh, project from the Education Committee of NANS in the CNS communities. Today, I'm uh, here with Dr. Tracy Speed. Hi, Dr. Speed. Hi, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Dr. Speed um, is uh, a faculty at uh, Johns Hopkins University. Uh, she is assistant professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences. Uh, she's a chief psychiatrist personalized pain program and a provider in the Johns Hopkins treatment program. Uh, she is uh, very well published and uh, very involved in research. She's an editorial board member of uh, the psychology, psychiatry and brain neuroscience section of the Journal of Pain Medicine. She has written articles and book chapters uh, on um, pain-related psychological comorbidities and is a co-investigator on NIH-funded uh, clinical trial assessing opioid-sparing treatments, including strategies to improve uh, patient engagement. So thank you so much, Dr. Speed, uh, for uh, being with us today. Uh, please, uh, any introduction from you, and then we will start a discussion. Right. Well, um, it's wonderful to be here. So thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to talking about um, opioid management in the perioperative period, which is something um, we are very focused on at Johns Hopkins. Excellent. Excellent. So but this is a, a very interesting topic and has been um, a topic of focus in the society, um, especially with the fact that the number of opioid-related death has been increasing nationally. And opioid epidemic is a major concern and clinical, social, and even like a political standpoint um, has been a major uh, topic of discussion in different arenas. And we know that one of the um, contributing factors that may warrant more attention uh, is uh, perioperative opioid prescribing because a lot of patients at first exposed to opioids um, around the surgery to take care of and control the uh, acute postoperative pain. And this relief may carry the risk of adverse effects, uh, addiction, overdose, and even problematic usage afterwards in the long term. Uh, so thoughtful prescribing and follow-up during the perioperative periods, they, they have the potential uh, to decrease the opioid-related uh, conditions, morbidities, and mortalities. And I think the, the skills of the anesthesiologist, the surgeon, psychiatrists, and the pain specialist uh, can be a huge asset to identify high-risk patients 
and um, promote the consciousness on prescribing and catering, uh, personalized probably even uh, pain control um, strategies for the patients to control pain adequately and at the same time avoid potential adverse effects and long-term um, sequela for the patient. So I'm going to start with the, um, the first question as an expert in this field in, um, uh, in especially psychiatry and opioid management. How much do you think is the role of opioid overprescribing after surgery as a contributor to the current opioid crisis? Yeah, I think that's a really important question to start. Um, and certainly we know that opioid overprescribing in general across all specialties of medicine has contributed to the crisis for the past couple decades. Um, and surgeons um, are part of that overprescribing. So when we look at the numbers, about 10% of opioid prescriptions are written by surgeons. And there's also a fair amount of, of opioids written by um, nurse practitioners and mid-level providers who are probably working with surgical teams. Um, and so when you think about about 100 million uh, surgeries, whether they're ambulatory or inpatients happening per year in the US, and the standard of care has been to discharge patients with an opioid prescription, that kind of produces a lot of opioids that are available to people. Um, and I think just as you had mentioned before, one of the risks and one reason that this is really important is because we now know that you know, even a couple days worth of, of opioid prescriptions increases someone's long-term risk of opioids. Exactly. Yeah. Very true, very true. And it, this is uh, like a big problem that we, we see not only in the perioperative, um, as a chronic pain physician, we see in a lot of patients that had a surgery in the past and you see them come after three months, after six months, and they're still kind of lingering around like using opioids. And uh, it's hard to uh, sometimes manage um, uh, patients at that point. So do you think that um, opioids currently in our standard clinical management for perioperative pain control are prescribed too long or the doses are too high after surgical procedures, and what do you think that will be the best clinical practice uh, to manage that kind of um, uh, perioperative uh, pain, especially immediately after surgery? Yeah, so uh, I think historically, yes, we've been prescribing opioids at doses that are too high and um, probably for excessive durations. Um, I think that's reflected in, if you just kind of look at a lot of the publications in the past five to 10 years, there's a lot of evidence that there's variability um, in opioids prescribed at discharge, even for similar procedures and even across institutions. And so there's kind of really been a, a limited guidance for physicians and surgeons to kind of determine how many opioids to prescribe. Um, and uh, again, thinking about kind of an uptick in literature in the past few years, um, one of my colleagues when he was at Hopkins, Mark Bickett, he had published a systematic review um, that showed um, anywhere from two thirds to 90% of patients prescribed opioids after surgery, you know, don't need all those opioids. 
And since then, there's been um, many other groups, in, in particular, I think uh, the Michigan Medicine Group's pretty prolific, uh, kind of has robustly shown that patients are not using the, the opioids that we've been prescribing after uh, surgery. Very good. Yeah, that, that's, that's a very uh, important factor that um, how you are gonna like manage that. But a lot of times when you talk to the surgery colleagues and even uh, talk to the pain specialist or anesthesiologist, um, they say that this is a standard of practice. That's what we have available. Uh, and they don't have, as you said, there's no like a solid guidelines and recommendations how to uh, seek for uh, different alternatives. Uh, what do you think are the possible solutions to appropriately and in a place that it's needed prescribe opioids uh, or use other alternatives to identify the high-risk patients and prevent complications? Another good question. So, um, you know, I think the good news is that we're already moving in this direction and there is already a, a cultural shift of, of changes for opioid prescribing um, after surgery. And um, I, I see the, the big picture of kind of three things that a lot of institutions and academic centers are doing. And that's thinking about education and that's educating both the patients and their uh, care providers, as well as um, physicians and clinicians. Um, and then thinking about some guidelines and kind of evidence-based medicine of how much opioids we should be prescribing. And then lastly, really building on collaborative care models. Um, so at Johns Hopkins in 2017, we established the Personalized Pain Program, which is a transitional pain program where we're trying to work with patients um, you know, before surgery to help optimize their pain. And then the acute pain service works with patients during that intraoperative and acute postoperative period to use opioid sparing techniques. And then we start following patients long-term to help kind of taper them off opioids and help manage. Um, and that's a trend in terms of the transitional pain services. This is, um, Toronto kind of pioneered that service. Um, I think we're the first service that really pairs psychiatry and anesthesia. Um, and then there's a number of other places from Duke and Vanderbilt and Virginia um, and the VA that have similar models um, of kind of that collaborative care model. Excellent. Yeah, and, and like if you have seen in like a perioperative surgical care uh, departments and uh, groups sometimes are uh, created in the large uh, institutions. And then I have seen a lot of benefits into that because it brings up a lot of collaborative effect and um, uh, effort uh, to take care of the patients. And it's like, not everybody is kind of like working in their own silo um, and uh, it becomes much better communication between teams. Um, do you see any role in change in like, uh, you see that it might needs to be done as a standard of like a national level, uh, not just the institutional level to improve, uh, find not only finding the high risk patients, uh, like a create a regimen and also even using some of these, like we have um, opioid uh, risk assessment tools for all the patients uh, uh, prior to actually going to the uh, uh, surgery and then uh, come up with it, as you said, with the team effort and the collaborative uh, care um, to individualize the treatment for these patients, and even think that in some point that we have to avoid opioids um, if it's possible for these patients. 
I'm uh, certainly a big proponent in terms of kind of screening patients and trying to identify people who are at high risk of uh, prolonged post-operative opioid use. I think that's really important. And that's coming from the psychiatrist <laughs> who tends to see people, you know, years down the road when they've been on opioids for a while. Um, and so I do think that that's really important in um, kind of the transition where we're doing more preoperative assessments and bringing in pain specialists and, um, and teams. And you're, like you mentioned, starting to, to not just work in silos anymore. Uh, I think that's really important. Um, and then that gets kind of tra uh, transitioned through all the different stages of surgery. Um, I'm probably less of a proponent <laughs> of kind of creating some national standards or national guidelines. Um, I agree with institutions that are working on identifying kind of evidence-based practices for particular surgeries um, in particular populations. Um, but I do worry that if we generalize something at the national level, we're gonna end up curtailing opioids and maybe moving the pendulum too far or forgetting that people are individuals and we need some flexibility to be able to uh, prescribe opioids based on evidence in our clinical judgments uh, and not just um, standardized guidelines. Sure. My next question is, um, uh, great answer by the way. Uh, my next question is um, basically to see where we see uh, the, the future of a perioperative um, pain control. Um, we always talk about sparing opioid prescription. And uh, a lot of um, anesthesiologists and even uh, surgeons perioperatively, we try to kind of minimize the amount of opioids. Do you see any future as uh, from your standpoint uh, in like opioids being one of the oldest medications uh, uh, available and used in medicine? Is there any future for opioid-free uh, perioperative pain management, with, uh, especially with the new medications that uh, are available, especially you can use uh, uh, peripheral nerve blocks, epidurals, uh, and also even, uh, I always see that these like new technologies that are up like using biofeedback with virtual reality uh, that are kind of like a state of the art and uh, new horizons are opening for pain control. What do you see as a uh, future and maybe in the future become a standard of practice for these kind of modalities? Sure. So as a reminder, I'm coming from the perspective of a psychiatrist uh, who's not in the operating room and not in the PACU. So take this, take what I say with a grain of salt. Um, but knowing the literature pretty well, I think we're moving in the direction of um, definitely opioid sparing techniques, like you're mentioning using um, more ketamine and um, the, gap of, the gabapentoids, um, you know, the acetaminophen. So really using multimodal treatments um, is able, we're able to reduce opioids at various stages of surgery. Uh, certainly regional techniques, my colleagues like Dr. Hannah, who created our personalized pain program at Hopkins, you know, she's really led the field in, in uh, regional and acute pain treatment. And so I, I definitely see those becoming kind of the standard of care and being able to, to use opioid sparing techniques. Yes, I think we're gonna be using virtual reality and biofeedback and different um, procedures too and kind of the acute post-operative period to help minimize opioids. Um, I, 
I would also say, um, based on a, a number of international kind of consensus guidelines and just the reality of, of the purpose of opioids is that I don't think we'll ever get to a, a point where we're not using opioids uh, for surgical pain. And I think that there is a role to some degree for, um, for opioids. They are effective for acute pain. We know that a, a adequate treatment of acute pain is gonna help prevent chronic pain. So I do think opioids are probably gonna play a role in kind of a combination of multimodal analgesia. And um, it, it's always a little bit concerning to think that we would move again, move that pendulum all the way <laughs> and not try to use uh, adequate pain treatment. Excellent. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that comment. And I, I feel like there is, uh, there should be a uh, sweet spot in the, the correct, uh, uh, basically, uh, um, well, appropriately, uh, uh, kind of like a catered for every patient. Not every patient responds the same, and you have to find out that, like, uh, some of the patients might not need it or might minimal, and some patients you might have to use. Uh, but it, it brings up uh, to my next question: That's uh, we. Um, in a society, especially with uh, uh, new CDC guidelines that are coming for um, uh, opioid prescription and uh, recent updates that we see, um, opioids, it's not just the overdose. It's not just the abuse that it's the concerning about the opioids. We don't want to demonize opioids. Uh, you know, obviously, as you said, there is a correct and appropriate indication uh, for the right patient in the uh, right situation. But um, the side effects and um, uh, complications of opioids goes beyond the overdose and uh, respiratory depression. And as you know, I, I'd like you to, if you don't mind, you know, talk about it, like some of those other side effects that we have seen, especially for the cancer uh, recurrence uh, rate that might be increased, uh, a lot of endocrinopathies and immune suppressions that come after um, opioid usage and can even adversely affect the uh, surgical outcome, not only just the uh, um, uh, pain control uh, quality of the patient. Yeah, so we, we talk about um, with the opioid crisis, uh, overdose deaths, um, overdose in general is kind of the, the main topic, right? That makes it in publications and the media. But in reality, I think uh, excessive opioids, they affect people on a day-to-day -day level too. Um, and I certainly, you know, talk to patients about metabolic risks and the immune suppression changes um, in terms of their uh, endocrine pathways. Um, I'll honestly say sometimes when I have people who might be resistant to an opioid taper, um, if I talk to men about, you know, how it might affect their testosterone level, and might be contributing to either decreased libido or some sexual side effects that can sometimes sway people to think about <laughs> tapering off opioids. Um, but I think most importantly, you know, what I've seen clinically and what's very clear in the literature now is opioids do affect people's uh, mood and their functioning and their cognition. Um, and so that's certainly um, what I see in clinical practice. And what we're collecting data on in our para, um, in our personalized pain program, when we've asked patients how they're doing um, since their opioids were tapered, is they're saying, you know, I can think more clearly, and the brain fog is lifted, and you know, I'm I'm able to interact with my family more, and my social connections have improved. Um, 
And so for a while we hadn't kind of noted that in the literature, but I think that we're also, there's much more of an abundance of, of those factors too in the literature. Um, and so uh, I think patients are, are always pleasantly surprised when their pain can actually decrease <laughs> and, um, um, and, not, and sometimes even improve. And they also gain these other aspects of their daily functioning. Excellent. Yes, that that's absolutely correct. And I, and if especially a uh, um, major part of our audience are um, uh, neurosurgical colleagues, and um, uh, they all aware aware that like all these um, high dose opioids, it might impact the participation of the patient, as you said, because of the depression uh, for physical therapy rehabilitation process afterwards, and, and also the immune suppression. Uh, plus, if it's a cancer operation, the cancer recurrence, it might actually have like a, a significant um, um, impact on uh, um, the patient clinical outcome. Uh, but I think this is a great conversation that we had. This is a, a very major and big topic, uh, a lot of details into it, uh, and a lot of educational uh, factors for all of us as uh, physicians, uh, as psychiatrists, as pain physician, and, uh, neurosurgery colleagues, or spine surgery colleagues from uh, um, uh, orthopedic as well, to uh, see that how much um, this uh, really important uh, is to uh, look at smallest things that we can think that uh, perioperative opioid management might be the small component of your care, but it can have a large effect uh, on your patient outcome. And we all need to uh, improve our awareness and education uh, to uh, this uh, important factor. Um, is there anything that you want to highlight in the last few minutes as a takeout message uh, for our clinicians uh, to uh, improve uh, our um, understanding and uh, standard of practice to optimize that to a level that we provide better care for our patients in perioperative opioid management. Yeah, I think there, there's two things I can end with. And one is um, that it is exciting that we're starting to change the care delivery model for surgery and really having these collaborative care models. Um, and again, talking to my patients and doing research on this, uh, reviewing the literature, patients really appreciate having a specialist and having someone who's really focused on their pain. Um, so this model of um, transitional services and working together, I, I really hope becomes the new standard of care. <laughs> uh, the other is, um, you know, with the, the 2022 CDC guidelines. Um, I think right now there's an option for, for people to review some of the guidelines and there's a public forum. And the CDC is really focused on kind of uh, engagement and that patient-centered care and kind of a human factors model. And so I can, I can put a plug in for some of the work we're doing at Johns Hopkins in our program of collaborating with our, our human factors and systems engineer, like Dr. Xi, um, where we're really trying to understand how to improve engagement uh, with patients and with their family members. Because I, I think one of the important things with working with opioids and managing opioids is um, a shared decision kind of plan with the patient, right? So there's a whole controversy of forced opioid tapers and involuntary opioid tapers versus voluntary. And I think one of the ways we're gonna be able to address 
post-operative opioid prescriptions. Um, and as you mentioned at the beginning, those patients who end up on opioids at month two or three post-op, and then what do you do with them? I think we really need to, to work on education models and engagement models to help them understand you know, why we're recommending tapering off opioids um, and to have them be an, an active participant in that process. Excellent. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And uh, even more emphasis on uh, collaboration. And I think it's important to always include the patient um, prior to surgery, right after surgery, in the follow-ups, in the uh, decision-making process, and keep that uh, strong communication uh, with a patient and other specialties. And that would be the key to success and uh, to make sure that the patients are aware of every single step that you're taking in their care. Um, so uh, we wish to thank all our listeners and also CNS and uh, NANS uh, for the joint collaboration for innovative content. Uh, I think this was a very uh, nice conversation. We thank Dr. Speed for taking the time to discuss uh, this interesting topic of opiate prescribing and use in the perioperative period. Uh, and thank you for your dedication and the impact of your work that uh, uh, made and continues to make in our field. Um, I will hope you will be uh, joining us, uh, all the uh, uh, listeners, uh, to our future webinar. And thank you again to uh, uh, Dr. Speed for uh, joining this uh, uh, conversation.